Ecclesiastes chapter 7 tonight, if you'd meet me over there in your Bibles, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. The book of Ecclesiastes is found in the section of our Bibles, which is known as the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, make up that section, and certainly much of what we have seen in the book of Ecclesiastes is the perspective of man looking at the world from under the sun. And if Ecclesiastes 6 is the dark point of the book, indeed some Bible commentators say the lowest point in all of the Bible is Ecclesiastes chapter 6, we start the upward climb as we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. The writer of Ecclesiastes takes a decidedly different tone beginning in verse 1 of chapter 7, and he begins to share with us some wisdom for life. Some have suggested that perhaps this wisdom is just the wisdom of man or wisdom under the sun, Uh, but there are certainly applications of God's wisdom that are found here, and I've titled the message tonight, Wisdom is Better. We'd like to look at the first 14 verses or roughly the first half of Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and look at some of the statements, some of the proverbs that he shares with us. And indeed, if Solomon is the author, the human author of the book of Ecclesiastes, much of Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and the chapters that follow sounds much like the writing in the book of Proverbs, which we're familiar with. And so direct your attention there to verse number one. The scripture says this, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. Say not thou, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, and by it there is profit to them that see the sun. For wisdom is a defense And money is a defense, but the excellency of knowledge is that wisdom giveth life to them that have it. Consider the work of God, for who can make that straight which he hath made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day of adversity consider. God also hath set the one over against the other to the end that man should find nothing after him. Various Proverbs which give us good counsel for living, 
found in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I've tried to group them in such a way as it seems like they go together. Some of them clearly stand alone, and some of them seem to develop a theme with a couple of Proverbs together. But notice the statements of truth found here in the first 14 verses of the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Notice, first of all, the Bible says that a good reputation is better than riches. It's very similar to something that is stated in the book of Proverbs, but he says it this way here in verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment. Precious ointment was expensive and desirable in those Bible days. In that hot climate where water was scarce, it was not so easy to bathe your body or to find enough water to do so. And so many people used ointments to make themselves smell a little better. Of course, ointments could also be used as uh, an anointing for burial and had various practical purposes. But because of the way that these ointments were made, they were often quite expensive and they cost a lot of money. Many of the ingredients for these ointments would come from far off lands and because of the transport would cost a lot of money. You remember in the New Testament when when the woman broke that alabaster box of ointment over the feet of Jesus and then washed his feet with her hair, it was stated that that box of ointment could have been sold for a year's worth of wages. So you get the idea that this ointment was very expensive. Even today, many people take delight in using different colognes and perfumes that are expensive and that smell exotic. And some of us just like cheap cologne because it's a lot more reasonably priced. You know, in many ways, ointment addresses the appearance of the outer man. It makes us perhaps more palatable to the noses of those who are around us. Or, if you chose poorly, not so much. But there's something far more important than the outer man. And that's the point that the wise man is making in verse number one. And it is incredible how much time and expense people will go to to make the outer man appear a certain way or smell a certain way. And yet they will give almost no thought or effort to the inner man. And so he says this, you would be better off having a good name than having much precious ointment. It's much better for you to develop the inner man If you want to put it this way, it's better to have a reputation that smells good. It's better if people know that you have godly character and integrity. It is far more important to live in a way that is pleasing to God and that develops a reputation as someone who loves God and puts Him first. The sad truth tonight is that some people smell good on the outside, but they stink on the inside. And the sad truth is that many people give little to no thought about their reputation until they have managed to completely soil it. And then they get angry that other people look at them askew about their reputation, but they have gone to great trouble making the reputation that they have. If I could implore our young people this evening, your reputation is something to be guarded. Your name is something that is precious, and you ought to take care with the actions that you involve yourself in, because as the book of Proverbs tells us, even a child 
is known by his doings. And you ought to be careful about your reputation. Reputation is better than riches. He goes on in the second part of verse number one, and he makes another statement, and he says the day of death is better than the day of one's birth. He's making two better statements. In fact, through the, through the chapter here, chapter 7, he makes a number of better statements so that we would understand there are things we ought to choose over other things. Here he says something strange, the day of your death is better than the day of your birth. And of course, we would think of some of the morbid statements that he's made up to this point, especially the statements in chapter 6. And yet I would point out to you that he seems more hopeful and certainly more positive in this sense And it is true tonight, and this is the second truth, that there is victory in death for the believer. And it is true that the day of death for a believer is very different. See, the author, I don't believe in chapter 7, I don't believe he's celebrating death in a dark way. Rather, I think he's making a statement much like the Apostle Paul made in the New Testament when he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For a believer, the day of our death is the day of our graduation to glory. It's the day of our stepping into the presence of the Lord. He's pointing out for us here that death is not the end for the child of God. It's the doorway to eternity. It's the doorway to the presence of the Lord. And with this perspective, the death of a believer could be an occasion for rejoicing, even though we may miss them terribly. And certainly we've experienced this with funerals which we've observed in this church with beloved brothers and sisters and there's both an element of rejoicing because we know that they're with the Lord but also sadness because they're no longer with us and we understand both sides of this but there's a consolation in this that death holds no sting for the child of God because Christ has removed the sting and so he reminds us that there's victory in death for the believer. If this was not so, then death would be something for us to fear and something for us to avoid at all costs. But the truth is, death is coming for all of us. And as believers, we ought to have a completely different view of death than the world does. Now, in verses 2 through 6, he groups some thoughts together. And these thoughts follow the theme, third of all, of this truth, much can be learned through mourning and sorrow. So in verses 2 through 6, he begins to talk about the importance of sorrow over levity. Uh, The idea of, of, you know, a lot of people want to laugh. They want to have a good time. They want to have fun. But he's pointing out to us that there is a time when it's important for us to go to the house of mourning. In in fact, he says in verse 2, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. This is a a tremendous passage for a funeral service, and it's a good reminder to us, the house of mourning is the place where you go to say goodbye to someone who has passed away. You go to spend time with the family and friends and to comfort one another, and in the old days, this would usually take place in the family home, and uh, even in our area, some of, the, uh, some of the folks who are a little more old-fashioned, some of the Mennonite community and the Amish community 
When someone passes away, the body is laid in, in the house, the family home, and everyone comes from around and spends time together with the, with the person who has deceased, with their body there, and they come to give their regards and to mourn together. And he says, it's better for us to go to the house of mourning. Now today, most of our funerals take place, not even in the church house, but often in a funeral home. And uh, as the case may be, sometimes we'll have funeral services here in the, in the Lord's house, in, the, in the, the church building. But often those take place in a funeral home. And it's amazing to me how often people will avoid going to a funeral or avoid going somewhere where they, where they might see a dead body. As if somehow seeing a dead body is going to remind them of their own mortality. But I want to remind you that it's good to go to the house of mourning. It's good to go and observe that life is short. It's good to be reminded that we're not going to live in this body and in this world forever. And we must prepare ourselves for the world that is coming. The house of mourning is a place with many lessons. And the lesson that he points out for us here is that this is the end of all men. And if you go to the house of mourning, there's a chance that you will lay it to your heart. If I could implore our parents, take your children to funerals. Let them go by the casket. Let them see that death is real. Let them understand that life is short. You say, but why would we do such a thing? Why would we hide such a thing? It's a reality. It's, it is the truth about this life. And that is why it's important to go to the house of mourning. Now he says it's better to go to the house of mourning than it is to go to the house of feasting. The house of feasting is the place where there's the party. The music is playing. The food is on the table. Everyone is having a wonderful time. There's laughter drifting out the windows. And though it's not as pleasant, he says it's better for us to go to a funeral than to a feast. Now, most of us enjoy a feast. And a feast is not necessarily wrong. There's a time to feast. But most times of feasting are frivolous and short-lived. They're short-sighted. They don't take into account the seriousness of life. Most people in our culture today want to have non-stop entertainment. Entertain me all the time. Make me happy. Show me things that will make me laugh. I don't ever want to think about the serious things of life. He says, this is unwise. This is not a good way to live. He continues this theme in the next verse, and he says, sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. You know, brethren, as much as it is painful, it's good for us to go through seasons of sorrow. It's good for us to experience grief and disappointment. You understand, we want to always be happy. We want to always feel glad and to feel as if there's no trouble or difficulty. And yet this world is filled with trouble and difficulty. And we ought to be sober-minded about the fact that there's much sorrow. Sometimes I think it's true that you and I need to walk through the valley before we can appreciate the mountaintop. 
If we only ever lived on the mountaintop of victory and never experienced any difficulty, any, any struggle, any sorrow in our life, we wouldn't appreciate the blessings as much as we ought to. So he reminds us that sorrow is better than laughter. It's hard for us, especially when we see someone else sorrowing. Isn't it your tendency, I know it's mine, to try to cheer them up, to tell a joke? Come on, just feel better. Hey, I want to pull you out of this place of sorrow. Come on, there's something to be cheerful about. And sometimes as Christians, we're not sensitive to the fact that grief is fitting in certain circumstances and grief should not be rushed. Grief is not something to hurry past and to get on to the good stuff because actually sorrow and grief is a place where we learn much and we are instructed in our inner man. We learn something about what it means to live in the place of sorrow. Notice he goes to the next verse, verse 4, and he's still developing the same theme. He says, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now he really emphasizes this point. The house of mirth is a place of frivolous gladness. It's the place where the party is going on and everybody is giggling and laughing and having a wonderful time. Oh, it's wonderful. Life is great. He says that's the, that's the place where fools hang out. It's a fool who always wants to have a good time. It's a fool who thinks that life is a big party and that we can't ever be serious. He says the, the, the heart of the wise man is in the house of mourning. He, his heart is tied to the place of sorrow. How sad it is that many people avoid mourning or sorrow at all costs. They only want to have fun. If they start encountering some sorrow, they go and try to find some substances to make themselves feel better, to lift their spirits, to cover the pain, to pretend as if there is no sorrow. But by doing so, they remain foolish and they miss the lessons that God has for them in the place of deep sorrow. Never forget, brethren, that Jesus was called the man of sorrows. If it was necessary for Jesus, the Son of God, to feel sorrow, what must be our lot in this life? Why is it that we are always trying to escape from sorrow and never wanting to feel sad? Now, listen, I'm not encouraging you to be depressed either. That's not the point of this. Rather, I believe that the the wise man is encouraging a sobriety about life a seriousness about life, which many in our culture seem to be missing altogether. There's no sense of seriousness about life. Everything is a joke. Everything is intended for hilarity and fun. And there are things that are not hilarious and things that are not fun. He goes on in verse 5. He says, It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. Now, remember, he's continuing the same theme. Nobody likes to be corrected. Nobody likes to be rebuked. Nobody likes somebody saying to them, you're wrong, you're doing the wrong thing. In fact, most of us try to avoid that. It's unpleasant to receive rebuke. We prefer to have happy and positive words shared with us. But it's a biblical surety 
that you and I must experience rebuke in order to become wise. We weren't born wise. We need to grow into wisdom. And that growth into wisdom usually involves someone looking across at us and saying, what you're doing is wrong. The decision you're making is wrong. What you're doing is not wise. We don't like that. We want people to build us up and make us feel good about our decisions. But rebuke is something that is necessary. If you and I only seek out the song of the fool, then we're destined to stay in the land of the fool. But you know, there's many people who will avoid any sort of rebuke. In fact, they'll go around, try to hide their decisions from those that they know will disagree with them because they want to do what they want to do. And they'll tell the people that they know, will say, oh, that's wonderful, so they can feel good about themselves. This is unwise. The wise man is warning us of our tendency. And by the way, we all have that tendency. He caps off this section in verse 6. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. It's a very descriptive metaphor. The crackling of thorns. If you took some dried thorns and you put them under a pot to build a cooking fire and you lit them, you would find that those thorns would light very quickly and they would burn kind of aggressively and pretty quickly they would be gone. They would make a lot of crackling, a lot of noise, but not much heat. You wouldn't get much cooking done over that fire. That's not the kind of fire that you want to cook over. We all know that if you're going to cook over a wood fire, you want to have some hot coals with a nice, steady heat for cooking the thing in your pot. But the truth is, many people are seeking out the laughter of the fool. They're looking for, uh, for hilarity, for fun. And as I think about it, I can't help but think about the entertainment of this world. The entertainment that the world offers is so much nonsense. And, and if that offends you, I'm sorry. It's nonsense. It's just a bunch of stupidity put out there for people who are unwitting consumers who want to sit down and be amused to death. They don't want to think about the realities of life, so show me something fun. In fact, show me something fun all the time. I want to be entertained nonstop, all the time. The laughter of fools. But that laughter is hollow, it's empty, and it provides small comfort. When you need real comfort, you'll not get it in front of the television set. You'll not get it at some party with a bunch of fools laughing and carrying on. That's not where you'll find real comfort. So he warns us that this kind of laughter is vanity, it's emptiness. So he's reminding us much can be learned through mourning and sorrow. Don't try to avoid mourning and sorrow. It's our lot in life to experience sorrows, and there's much to be learned there. He starts a new section in verses 7 through 10. And the theme of this section is this lesson. Practical wisdom should be desired and applied. God wants us to seek after wisdom. He shares several practical truths in these four verses. In verse 7, he says this, Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. The word mad, as it's used in verse 7, speaks of him going crazy, going insane. And what he's talking about is 
If a wise man is in authority and he lets power go to his head and he begins to misuse the authority that God has given to him, it's going to cause a problem in his life. Along with that, if he begins to accept bribes and allow the sense of justice to be skewed by receiving a gift from someone else, he's putting himself in a place where he is destroying his own heart. And the warning here in verse 7 is that if you are given any sort of power or authority, make sure to use it wisely and in a way that pleases the Lord. If you're a dad, don't misuse that authority as a father. If you're an employer, don't misuse that authority over employees. If you have some other place of authority, don't misuse that authority. Don't let that authority go to your head. It was given to you by God and you ought to use it wisely. Verse 8 is another practical lesson. He says, better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Now again, this is not fatalism. But he's reminding us that there's many circumstances that we face in life which are bewildering and discouraging. We face these situations and we don't know which way to turn. In fact, some situations seem like there's no good that could ever come out of this. I don't see how God could ever use this for good. And yet, we know the promise of Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 that all things work together for good to them that love God. Yet in the beginning of many things, especially trials and difficulties, we find ourselves asking, this doesn't seem very good. I'm thankful tonight that God is able to bring good out of difficulty and that one day in the end of that thing, we can look back with gratitude on the trial that we have faced. Like Joseph, you and I may be able to say one day, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Now, you may be so proud tonight as to think that you should never face trials, but he reminds us in this verse, verse number eight, that it is better for us to be patient and to endure the trials that God allows. Don't get bitter at God for the trials that you face. Don't get angry at God for the circumstances that he allows in your life. Be patient in spirit. It's better to be patient in spirit than proud in spirit. Verse 9, he warns us again, Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. Do you know, some people are so foolish as to think that anger is some kind of a righteous distinction. As if their anger above all others is righteous and they never sin in their anger. And let me warn you, I know the Bible says that we should be angry and sin not. And I know there's a place for righteous indignation, but I know my heart. And when I find myself getting angry, I have to really be careful and ask myself, Am I angry because of the honor of God or am I angry because my rights have been violated? Am I angry because I didn't get my way? And you know, when I examine my heart, I'm just being honest with you. Most of the time when I'm angry, it's not righteous anger at all. 
It's selfish, sinful anger. And I think that if you looked, you would probably find the same to be true in your life. A foolish man allows his wrath to be easily stirred. In truth, a foolish man seems to always be on the edge of an angry outburst because anger is a part of him. Remember tonight that the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. It's not a righteous thing to have a hair-trigger temper. To, to be known as an angry man is not a good thing. If you find that anger is something that you go to quickly, what you've learned about yourself is that you're a fool and that you need to ask God to help you to temper your spirit. Verse 10, Say not thou, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. A little lesson about nostalgia. Why is it that the past always seems better? It always seems like life was so much easier. Like, I wish we could go back and have life the way that it used to be. Even today, we look back and we think, well, I wish that life in our country could be like it was back then. Nostalgia is a terrible thing. Sometimes we look back with fondness at the way things were, and we wish that those ways would return. But the truth of verse 10 is this. God wants you and I to live in the present tense. It's unwise for us to be wishing for different circumstances. It's just as unwise for you to be pining for the future as it is for you to be pining for the past. There's a reason that God puts you here, now, in this moment. Living in the past or living in the future is sure to frustrate you. And so keep your eyes on the circumstances right now and trust that God hasn't made a mistake with where he's put you. Some practical wisdom in these verses for us to desire and apply. Finally, in verses 11 through 14, he develops this truth. Wisdom is better than prosperity. Now... This is something that he is developing all through this chapter, that wisdom is better. That's why I titled the message in this way. Wisdom is better. It's good to have God's wisdom. Notice he says in verse 11 that wisdom is good with an inheritance. And by it there is profit to them that see the sun. What he's saying is, you got an inheritance? You got a big windfall from a, a loved one who died? Good for you. I hope you got a heaping helping of wisdom with that. How many people have been destroyed, completely destroyed, because they received a lump sum of money without any wisdom to go with it? So he says, if you have to choose between an inheritance and wisdom, always choose wisdom. Money isn't everything. And it can bring a tremendous amount of destruction if it's handled unwisely. The second thought that he has in this section in verse 12, for wisdom is a defense, and money is a defense. But the excellency of knowledge is that wisdom giveth life to them that have it. So he puts two things before us. He says wisdom is good. There's, there's, there's qualities of wisdom that make it a defense in your life. Money is also a defense. So let's consider these two things. Money is a defense because with money, you may be able to buy help in situations of 
distress or peril. For instance, if you're sick, you could go to the doctor and you could pay for the services of a doctor. You could pay for the lab tests. You could pay for the medicine that might be able to help you feel better. But if you have no money, it's a little more difficult. If you have some money, then you can go to the store. And if you're hungry, you can buy food to fill your belly. You don't have to worry about, now can I buy this or this? You could say, I could buy them both. I can have a steak and potatoes. And I could get some rolls and some salad. I have enough money to buy it all. I could have a good meal. Most of us don't know what it's like to not have enough money to buy food. So money is a defense. There's things that money can help with. Maybe you need to hire an attorney. And if you have some money, you can hire an attorney. Maybe you need to hire someone to fix your car. And if you have some money, you can hire someone to fix your car. If you don't have any money, what are you going to do? Walk? You say, I'll YouTube it and figure out how to fix it myself. I hope it works out for you. So money is a defense. Money's not bad. It's a tool that can be used for good. But he says wisdom is a defense. How is wisdom a defense? Well, wisdom can protect you in all kinds of situations from stupidity that could prolong your difficulty. You know, there's lots of people with lots of money and no wisdom. And it seems like they're always spending money getting themselves out of trouble that they didn't have to get into in the first place. If they had a little bit of wisdom, they could have saved themselves a lot of money. They could have got by a lot better if they just had some wisdom. Now, between these two defenses, wisdom or money, if you have to choose, always choose wisdom. This is the excellency of knowledge. Wisdom giveth life to them that have it. If you have wisdom, God's wisdom, you have life. There's lots of people with money that all they have is money. But wisdom brings a lot of benefits with it. The third verse in this section is verse number 13. Consider the work of God, for who can make that straight which he hath made crooked? Now, this is an unusual statement. Why would God make things crooked? Why would such a thing ever take place? Well, what the wise man is telling us is, there are things that God does which cannot be undone. Things that God has made crooked which cannot be made straight, no matter what the effort of man. You say, could you give me an example? Like the curse of sin. No matter the effort of man, the ingenuity of man, the wisdom of man, the money that man spends, man will never undo the curse that God has placed on this world because of sin. It can't be done. It cannot be undone, we should say. There are things that God does in His sovereign working which cannot be undone. These crooked things could also refer to difficulties and troubles, trials, twisty paths on our life's journey. And many people put a lot of effort and a lot of time 
and a lot of mental anguish into trying to straighten out twisty paths that God has allowed in their life, you would be better off just accepting the twisty path and trusting the hand of your good shepherd to lead you on that path. Instead of wasting all of your energy trying to change something that can never be undone. Verse 14, in in the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider, God also has set the one over against the other to the end, that man should find nothing after him. So we have a couple kind of days. We have joyful days, prosperity days, days when we rejoice. You know the kind of day. You go in for your paycheck. Do we do that anymore? You open your paycheck in your email, and you see your boss generously gave you a large bonus. Joyful day. Woohoo! Honey, we're going out to dinner. We're going to celebrate. It's great. Wonderful. Good day. You buy a new car, and it works. And you got a good price. It's a good day. All right, joyful. I'm happy. You know, it's fine. It's good to be joyful in prosperity. Be thankful in the blessings of God. Rejoice in all the good things that God gives. But he tells us there's another kind of a day. And it's the day of adversity. We don't like the day of adversity. The day of problems. The day that everything goes wrong on the job. The day that... You were trying to fix the car and snap the bolt off in the head. Oh, no. Now what? Your day just got very long. Don't ever underestimate the benefits that come from adversity. Do you know in our culture, we spend a lot of time trying to reduce and remove all adversity. We especially try to do this for our kids. And I'm telling you, it's not healthy for them. It's not healthy for people to grow up without adversity, without hardship. If you think about the character that you have in your life, most likely that character was developed during times of adversity. Adversity is good for us. God knows that. That's why he allows adversity in our life. It is God who sets those things into our life. Yes, he gives us blessing, but he also allows us to experience trials and difficulties because he knows that we need those things because it's in adversity where we often develop wisdom. Wisdom is better than prosperity. So tonight, consider with me, wisdom is better. We could all use a little more wisdom And thank God, we know exactly where to find it. Wisdom is freely available to us in the Word of God. But as we'll find out Sunday when we come to Sunday school, there's actually a little bit of effort that we have to put forth to glean this wisdom and to gain from it. God offers it freely, but there's an investment that's required on our part, an investment of effort and humility to apply the wisdom of God. Tonight... I hope you've been challenged that wisdom is better, and I hope in the rest of this week that you will seek after the wisdom of God.